Hey there, green future growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. The amazing Patty Armbruster is going to offer the most incredible composting class you'll ever take completely online Saturday, July 18th. 2020 it's only 37 dollars, and you will get a seat you will get a copy of the replay you will get to pick her brain question and answers um we are just gonna rock the composting how to do composting the most efficient effective and best way to improve the results in your garden welcome to the green organic garden podcast it is friday may 22nd 2020 and i am super excited because we have somebody here to she's from wild abundance which is um a website that has like all sorts of cool classes about um just like different things that go on outside her name is chloe lieberman and she majored in agroecology and sustainable food systems at santa cruz so i know she's going to be dropping golden seed after golden seed she wants to talk about some sustainable communities she loves cultivating foraging and utilizing medicinal plants and mushrooms and so i know you guys are going to love this interview so welcome to the show chloe thanks for having me it's great to be here well i am so excited so do you want to tell listeners a little bit about about yourself are you still in santa cruz now or where are you located no 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 i so wild abundance is really um, more than a website it's a school that i work with and for and i live here and the school is located here in the southern appalachian mountains just outside of Asheville in north carolina so um i have a homestead here with my partner we own 23 acres and we raise all kinds of vegetables along with staple crops like corn, potatoes, dry beans, winter squash, sweet potatoes. And we have a little micro dairy, just one Jersey cow and a small herd of mixed breed, mostly Alpine dairy goats. And we also dabble in, we have a little flock of ducks for eggs and my partner is a beekeeper and an orchardist. And we dabble in medicinal and edible mushroom cultivation. And like you said, foraging and cultivating medicinal plants. So we kind of, um, yeah, cover a lot of bases. And Wild Abundance, the school that I work with and for is located just down the road from our homestead. And the campus is the home and homestead of my dear friend and the Wild Abundance founder and director, whose name is Natalie Bogwalker. So um, yeah, together this year, we are working on an online gardening school. So we're teaching people all over the country and world about gardening pretty much because we love it and feel passionate and also because of just all the craziness that's going on and so many people are feeling afraid of the breakdown of supply chains and also more people are staying at home and so there's been this surge as I'm sure you and your listeners have noticed in interest in gardening and growing food and so we're kind of jumping in to try and support folks because you know, in my experience, when you first start out gardening, it can be overwhelming and hard. And, you know, if you try something and it doesn't work well, it can be discouraging. And so that's really where we're coming from is uh, encouraging and supporting people and steering them in the right direction so that folks who have that seed of inspiration and excitement about growing food can really have success and keep going. 
awesome it's so interesting i think like when i went to college there was a girl who like i always dreamed about going to montana and she always dreamed about going to maryland she's like doesn't it just sound so pretty <laughs> and i'm always laughing because i'm always picturing like baltimore i'm like maryland but i would feel the same way about north carolina except for like when i taught on the reservation everybody was into like pbr bull riding and so then i watched the longest ride you know nicholas sparks book movie about the and north carolina is beautiful otherwise i would yeah. have any idea anyway totally off topic what i'm curious about is <laughs> how big is your place that you're doing all this on did you say that how many acres like is yeah it's so we own yeah so we own 23 acres here oh, and north carolina is is pretty geographically varied so a lot of the bigger farms in this state are down in what we call the piedmont so um to the east of us towards the coast where the land really gets flat and we're up in the mountains. So we're in the Appalachian mountain chain in the Southern part of that mountain chain. And it's one of the oldest uh, mountain formations in the world actually, which is pretty cool. And there are a lot of endemic species that live here of plants and animals. It's just like a beautiful, amazing verdant jungle in the spring and summer. And it's a temperate rainforest. So we get a lot of rain and, um, in the winter, it gets chilly, although that's changing with climate change. But so our place is 23 acres, but a big chunk of that is a wooded hillside. So our our farm per se, the flatland that we have to work with is is only about probably three or four acres where we have the gardens and the fields and the animals. And then we're working on developing the wooded hillside. We harvest uh, timber, obviously, for wood heat and cooking and also for mushroom cultivation and my partner is just dedicated and working away at developing a silvipasture and nut orchard up on the on the slope so you know as i'm sure your listeners know 23 acres can mean a lot of different things when it comes to gardening if you have 23 flat acres of great topsoil then that's pretty different than 28 23 acres of marginal hilly land and we're kind of in between those two so we have you know some really beautiful flattish pretty flat flat for the mountains land where we do grow our gardens and keep our animals and then we have a uh, pretty steep land as well as kind of marshy boggy land and it's it's pretty diverse that's exactly what we're like here we have 20 acres of um forest trees like dug for a christmas tree type land uh-huh. um and then just like our like Mike's mini farm like you can see the before and after pictures of where he cut down the forest and like built the farm and pulled out all the stumps and like our garden has been slowly and there's places on our property where you could build and grow more and then there are other places where you wouldn't want to so very similar but very different we're certainly not temperate rainforest we're dry forest (laughs) where where are you located I was we're in northwest Montana okay by the Canadian border so um so i do kind of always start my show asking about your very first gardening experience like were you a kid were you an adult what were you what did you grow like who were you with what do you remember your very first experience well i i didn't grow up gardening i grew up in the suburbs uh in the bay area of northern california but I had friends, so I went to a small rural public school in the western part of the county where I lived. I had a transfer. It was like an alternative school that happened to be a public school, which was really a blessing for me and my family to go to a school that was public and free, but that was very alternative and um, 
project-based interdisciplinary, just an amazing little school called the Open Classroom in the Lagunitas Valley in Marin County. And my friend who I grew up with lived out in that more rural part of the county and had my one best friend had, her mom had dairy goats and made her own beer and had an apple tree and made her own applesauce and apple juice. And then my other friend's mom was a gardener and grew beautiful roses, I remember, and also lots of vegetables and berries and fruits. And so I did have early exposure and we had a garden at my school too. So I did have early, you know, childhood exposure to gardening and I loved it. And I was always drawn to be with animals and plants and be outdoors, but I didn't actually like tend my own garden until I was in college. And I went to UC Santa Cruz. I knew that I wanted to study agroecology, environmental studies, sustainable food systems. And I was approaching it both. I'm, I've, for my whole life, I've been an avid cook. And for many years, I was a vegetarian. I'm not a vegetarian anymore, but I still love vegetables and cooking vegetables. And anybody who cooks a lot kind of just has a visceral understanding of the difference in quality of vegetables that are grown in optimal conditions under organic conditions and sustainable practices versus those that are grown conventionally, basically in the industrial food system. And so that was a driving force for me too, was flavor and pleasure and enjoyment and cooking and nourishment. And so I came to UC Santa Cruz to study agroecology and sustainable food systems from kind of a macro perspective of looking at food justice and food systems and like looking at the way that the world works and how those systems function and how farmers are treated around the world and how farmers can make livings around the world and also the kinds of practices that our current food system encourages on farms and gardens and the kinds of practices that would be more optimal for farmers, for the land, for eaters, for everybody, and kind of the disconnect there and wanting to understand that and change that. And so while I was in college studying about food systems, you know, I was renting houses, you know, as college students do. And I, I think my first garden that I sort of spearheaded was in the front yard of this house that I lived in right next to the, the highway. And I double dug the beds and I grew, you know, like some tomatoes and lettuce, okay, just Chloe, to, sort of your, what you would expect in a first garden. It wasn't like the most successful, but it was cool to be translating all that I've been observing and learning and studying. And I had worked on other people's farms and gardens, like volunteered on harvest days and stuff, but to translate that into actually doing it myself for the first time. So that, that was my first experience and it just grew from there. And then moving out here to North Carolina, one of my big motivations was I really wanted to see what it would take to grow all of my own food, like what that actually looks like. Not that I have to do that forever, but just to have that experiential knowledge of what that takes. Cause so many of us just have no idea, you know, go to the store and buy your food and like the size of a patch of land that was necessary to produce that food and the water and the work. And so I just really wanted to have that, uh, hands-on experience of, you know, my impact on the earth basically. And that's what I've been exploring and uh, learning a lot about since I since I moved out here. No, the next question is going to be: Are you a rock star millennial born between 1980 and 1995? <laughs> I was born in 1983. Yeah. Awesome, because I'm writing a book about rock star millennials. 
um, because I just think they are like you, the ones that I talk to, they get such a bad rap and look at all these great things you've said. You were like my total avatar. Like my question to you is like, what in the heck made you say, I'm going to go to college and study sustainable agriculture and food justice. And like, (laughs) like, where do these ideas come from? Like, I wouldn't even have known what those things were when I went to college. Like, I just feel like we are failing our kids with like the opportunities out there. It's like, Oh, you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer. Well, Uh, still today, (laughs) like just basic jobs. Like kids have no idea what the options are. Like I often think if I would have known you could be an environmental lawyer in high school, that's where I would have gone. People were always like, you should be a lawyer because you like to argue so much. And my idea of an, a lawyer was like Kramer versus Kramer. Somebody mm-hmm. who deals with divorce court all day long. Yeah, and cool. Anything to do with that. <laughs> that wasn't exciting to you. Yeah. <laughs> but somebody who was passionate about saving our planet, that would have been like, right on yeah. the <laughs> Anyway, uh, tell us about your courses and what you just tell us what you want to talk about next. Okay, sure. Well, I, I, I'll answer your question of how I got there because I think that's important thing to, to important question to ask. Um, so like I said, I grew up in the Bay area of Northern California and I grew up in a very privileged and mostly white community of progressives. And so these ideas were, available to me and the idea of pursuing something because of my passion and not because of like the bottom line of needing to make money to support my family were present because of my social location and my cultural background. So I just want to acknowledge that like the fact that I was able to pursue those things, yes, was because of my social conscience and my inspiration and my life path, but also because of the amount of privilege that I have lived with. So I just want to acknowledge that, you know, that, that what kids are exposed to, there's kind of like, you know, this spectrum and young people, some young people have huge amounts of privilege, you know, like white privilege and class privilege and all of these things and don't get exposed to progressive ideas and don't ever so get asked. Those kids. Yeah. Don't ever get much more white privilege. Yeah. Than yeah. And so don't Very ever get asked questions about what is important to them or, or brought up into, brought into these discussions of how we can wield that power and privilege in a way that can be beneficial to, you know, to the world, the ecological world, but also the human world. And so I feel, I feel lucky to have been kind of at the intersection of those things of having all that privilege and that spaciousness to kind of make choices based on my passion and not just on the need to support myself and my family and also be in an environment of progressive thinking and social consciousness and all of that. And I also want to give credit to my parents, you know, who, who, really just encouraged me to do what I felt passionate about and encouraged me to always learn and ask questions. And that's another thing, just like folks listening, who have children, you know, it can be really overwhelming. I have a young child and it can be really overwhelming to look at the world and look at raising children right now. It's like, oh my God, you know, how can they find their place? This is just getting so crazy. But I think that fundamental attitude of encouraging children to find their own path and young people, not just little children. And ask questions, you know, questions that might not have answers, but to pursue those answers and that through the asking and through 
their engagement in the world that answers might arise that we don't even know exist yet. So that's, that's just an answer to that question of kind of how, how I got where I am. Awesome. Well, I know my listeners, I'm sure, are interested about the food forest and people have asked me about mushrooms and and I know they're going to want to know about there's classes they can take. Yeah, totally. So, um, so as I said, Wild Abundance is a school and up until two years ago, we were an entirely in-person school. So you would have to come here to the campus and take these really amazing connective community building classes ranging from three days to a couple of weeks. So we teach annually, we teach a permaculture design certification course that is just really uh, in-depth and hands-on. And we also have a one weekend a month, eight month long program that's also a permaculture design certificate program, but much, much more than that, look, digging into things like earth skills, which is which are the skills that our ancestors have used to relate with the natural world uh, to supply themselves with their sustenance and that whole dynamic. And um, yeah, a lot of amazing classes on building, natural building, rewilding, medicine making, you can check out the website to see what we offer. But as with many in-person classes and brick and mortar businesses with the um, coronavirus pandemic, we've had to cancel our classes. And so we've had to pivot into online learning. And fortunately, we a couple of years ago, we produced an online hide tanning class. So it's a class on using an all natural ancient method called brain tanning to turn a deer hide into really beautiful, soft, usable uh, buckskin, which is a kind of suede-like leather that's 100% natural. And we learned a lot through that um, process of producing that course. And now, like I said, as a result to this huge surge in interest in gardening and food growing as a result of the pandemic. And also in order to survive as a business, <laughs> we've created this online gardening school, which is a program to support new and intermediate gardeners in in being successful in growing food and also in relating to the garden as a living system. So we, we offer mentorship calls. So, you know, answering people's nitty gritty questions, but also going into kind of our approach to gardening and how gardening can be more for people than just a way to get food, but actually a way to connect with the natural world and to uh, connect with themselves too, through that process. So, so that's what we teach. And in terms of food forests and mushrooms and things like that, that's kind of more in the, we don't, we've, we've chatted about them on our mentorship calls with the garden school, but that's not covered in the garden school program. Um, we, we are looking to develop more online classes just because it's been really amazing to see how we can reach so many more people. You know, not everybody can drive or fly here to Southern Appalachia to take a course. And we're kind of in a hotbed of permaculture, back to the landers, creative, innovative homesteaders. And I know a lot of people live in areas where there aren't mentors and teachers. And so um, moving into this online programming has been really cool just to see we have somebody from Greece and somebody from New Zealand and a lot of folks from the U.S. from places that may or may not have teachers available, um, but folks who really want to learn. So, so definitely uh, I would encourage folks to get on our newsletter uh, mailing list because we're going to be developing more classes on, on definitely on mushroom cultivation 
and orcharding and food forests and that kind of stuff too. So that sort of all fits under the realm of permaculture, which I can talk a little more about if, um, if you want me to. I would love that. And I think after this thing is all over, you're going to find that three-day permaculture class just packed. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. that sounds so awesome to be able to go somewhere for just three days. Like, I think after we're all so sick of being home and we've done all this online stuff and, and we are going to come leaps and bounds, people are getting tech skills. They're getting more online. They're interested. But they're also like, it's going to have the opposite effect. Like, I think people yeah. are going to love workshops and seeing each other. I mean, it might be two years from now before we can really feel that comfortable. In Montana, we're going to groups of 50 on June 1st, I guess. You can be in a group of 50, so we'll see how that all plays out. But who knows? Yeah. Um, but um, I just want to clarify. Awesome. Okay. I just want to clarify the permaculture courses. I mean, permaculture kind of infuses everything that we teach, but the permaculture design courses are longer than three days. The three day courses are more um, subject specific. So we have a whole series of women's carpentry classes, which are really awesome. Um, and, you know, just for women and female identified folks to learn basic carpentry skills and get confident in working with tools and building with wood and building things for themselves. And then the, yeah, the three day, the shorter courses are more, we have a, um, a rewilding course. We have a survival skills course. So the permaculture courses are a little longer. I just want to clarify that, but the eight month program is three days each month for eight months. So that's a really awesome way to go deeper, but it is a longer commitment. So they actually have to come to your place for three days? Yes. Month? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, so it's local, um, more local folks. I think people, I, I think my listeners, a lot of the women are going to be excited about those carpentry classes because I got a lot of women who write to me that say, well, I'd love to be build deep beds, but I don't have a mic at home. And how do I do this? So maybe some women are going to pick up. I know Mike could probably be like, why don't you sign up for that? Jackie? Yeah. <laughs> totally. Everything I build just falls apart. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any of those skills. And I kind of gave up after like when I first moved in here and we were building our house, I'd be like practically go to tears if I didn't get to help. And then after yeah. like 6,000 nails and like having to take things apart after putting them together, I was just like, you know what? This is not my skill set yeah you know that's a really good point but maybe I never took a good class yeah if I I invite you to come and we've just have had wonderful feedback about these classes they are I and I have actually cooked for them and that may be changing or may not in the future but we, we provide lunch and it's I mean people come who have never picked up any kind of tool and then folks more in your position who've done some on your own but just want to have a more solid foundation. And I think we as women, you know, I don't want to generalize based on gender too much because obviously gender also is a spectrum, but, but my experience as, as a woman or a female identified person, we just tend to learn better in a direct, like not just by kind of messing around and doing it or in an environment where people kind of have this expectation that you already know what you're doing, but where we can really come together as a group, support each other, have that learning experience in community, you know, feel really comfortable to ask questions, even the quote unquote stupid questions, and then come to a point where it's like, oh yeah, like now I feel confident. I've gone through this process of really um, kind of being vulnerable as a beginner and then receiving guidance from somebody who is more skilled than me and then come into a place of 
feeling, feeling good about experimenting on my own and knowing what kinds of questions I, I need to still ask or explore. And yeah, I mean, we've just had such an amazing response. There are most popular classes are the women's carpentry class. And we actually offer one or twice a year, we offer an advanced class that's more about building structures. So the beginner class really covers the basics. And most people work on an individual project that's like a bookshelf or you know, a small planter box or something very simple. And then in the advanced class, we tackle like a shed, you know, something that actually stands up and holds up a roof and, you know, is level on the ground and all of those things. So yeah, they're just, they're awesome. I definitely encourage listeners to check that out. Yeah. And I was going to say like the thing I want to learn, like I keep waiting for a class on how to build gates. Like I yeah. feel like gates are really, and then the other thing is like when I went to free the seeds this year, I had this little booth and like, I gave away a book to like, I mean, like it was like, um, if you asked me a garden question and told me what your biggest garden challenge was, you got an entry to win a book. Uh-huh. And the number one thing everybody in Montana said, like out of 40 people, I want to say 35 of them said deer. And what mm, yeah. deer out a really good fence. <laughs> and fortunately, yeah. my husband is fantastic at building fences and great. does a great job with it. Awesome. But um, <laughs> but um, things like you know that's super important. You might be like, well, what do I care? I want to grow tomatoes. Well, let me tell you, pests and diseases question I get all the time. Yeah. Where do I find good dirt? Critters. And yeah. nobody on my show, like we all have different things for critters, but un, you know, ultimately the number one thing is fencing um, barriers, you know, yeah, it's yeah, groundhogs or whatever, either under the ground, put that fencing down, build that deep bed deep enough um, fencing. Yeah. And my big stroll, like one of the worst pets we've had is squirrels. And I have not figured out how to keep those squirrels out because they just hop along Mike's fence. Yeah, <laughs> like they it's sure a great do. great place to run. And so we're still kind of struggling with them, but we ended up putting our broccoli closer to the house. We're hoping when harvest time comes, we can cover it with row cover. Maybe that will keep them out. And just also being closer to the house where there's more dogs and and yeah cats maybe yeah no because they come at night when everybody's in the house anyway we're gonna see but yeah um squirrels are anyway the next question i wanted to ask you was um i can't remember what did you want to talk about next and i'll remember my question um i could talk about yeah, just this relationship between gardening and really connecting with the wider world. So a lot of people come to gardening because they want something to eat, which is totally understandable. You know, I mean, we want to grow food so that we can eat the food. And that is a a main reason why I garden and it's super rewarding and rewarding in ways that people don't even know when they first start out because there's so many varieties of vegetables that, you know, the varieties that we can buy in the store and even to some degree in the farmer's market have been bred for commercial production. So the kinds of qualities that they've been bred for are, you know, ripening time, like they all ripen at the same time. So it's easy to harvest and um, storability so they can be in a fridge or on the grocery store shelf or on a truck for a while without going bad. And there are all of these home uh, scale varieties that have been bred for home gardens that have been bred for qualities like flavor <laughs> and beauty and 
uh, varied harvest, varied ripening time so that you can have a long harvest window. Even if you just have a couple of plants, you can go out and pick a few, you know, summer squash each day for a month or more rather than go out and pick them all at once and then come back a week later and pick them again. So uh, there are all of these ways that we can benefit from gardening on a small scale, whether it's in a couple of grow bags or containers on a balcony or tearing up a lawn or, you know, whatever scale each person has access to that we may not even know ahead of time. And as we continue and kind of have that, that perseverance, because it is, as you and your listeners, I'm sure know, it is work too, you know, and you have those squirrels that come in and eat your seedlings or deer that get through the fence or somebody leaves the fence open and the deer gets in and all of these um, you know, what you could call failures or disasters. So it it takes diligence to keep going. But when you do, you can reap so many more rewards than just having some food on the table. And I think that's something that I and Natalie and all of us at Wild Abundance feel really passionate about is that, you know, human beings, as we were chatting about at the beginning of the interview, just about Zoom and and Snapchat and all of the ways that we've gotten so online and so connected, not connected. You know, we're connecting through these unnatural technological means and it's separating ourselves from our true face-to-face connection with other humans and also our connection with the natural world. And we're suffering because of it. You know, I mean, I could go into a lot of statistics, but the rates of depression and anxiety are skyrocketing and obviously food related illnesses like obesity and type two diabetes and high blood pressure and the list goes on. And so coming back to the garden and growing some food is, I see it as this like really appealing way to address all of those challenges. And so you know, we're not just getting some healthy food to eat, but we're also having this daily reminder of the reciprocal relationship that we have with the natural world. And it's not uh, an, in an intellectual way. It's not just an idea like, oh yeah, the earth gives us life, you know, which is a concept that folks may or may not be familiar or comfortable with, or may have an understanding of in their particular, you know, spiritual background or philosophical background. But this is like not philosophical. When you grow a garden and you grow plants that you get to harvest and eat, it's like something that you touch and you smell and you taste and, you know, your sweat goes into that. And maybe as you're digging your garden bed, you notice a a clutch of robins and baby robins that have just hatched that you wouldn't have noticed because you wouldn't have gone outside and you wouldn't have been doing this kind of repetitive meditative task of digging a garden bed and you wouldn't have sort of arrived in that moment in the same way if you didn't tend to garden and so yeah I just feel I feel hopeful that as folks even in an urban setting you know start to garden and kind of open that door to have uh, an experiential relationship with the natural world that some of these big challenges that we're experiencing culturally right now may have a little bit of a crack in them, have a little bit of an opening. We may find that the solutions are not as overwhelming and complex as they sometimes seem, but they're actually small and simple and each of us can participate in them in a way that is fun. And, and joyful and um, yeah, can lead to, to more sense of satisfaction in our lives. 
totally so like the questions i was thinking about is like so you started in the beginning talking about you wanted to learn how to grow like your own food and be self-sufficient and stuff like so like how long have you been doing that and like what made you come up with like one cow and some goats instead of like a few cows like what are some of those decisions (laughs) that you've made or what lessons have you learned there how long have you been doing it yeah We've had our homestead here. This is our seventh year uh, growing here. And for a year before that, we were growing a sizable field on a friend's place. So that was kind of the beginning. So I guess this is the eighth year of really attempting self-sufficiency with my food production. And I will say I don't grow and raise 100% of my own food. There are things that I buy. Occasionally we'll get a pizza or go out to dinner, you know, so I'm not like super hardcore it's more of um, a balance between that experiment and participating in modern life also. And a lot of the constraints, I mean, the size of the place that we have to work with and the number of people that we have to work the land are, are huge considerations, along with budget, of course, in terms of the, the numbers of things. And so with one cow, from you know it's a she's a jersey cow and we have her for milk production produces way more milk than we need so right now she's in late lactation so i've milked her through the winter she hasn't had a new calf this spring so she had a calf last spring who we raised for a little while we've since slaughtered him and his um meat is in our freezer and i've been milking her since so i'm only getting a gallon and a half of milk from her right now which is very low for a jersey cow when she first freshen. So that's the term of, uh, that you use for dairy animal after they've had a baby. So they're having, you know, the boost in milk production, the highest milk production is when they're first freshened or right after freshening, she will make over four gallons of milk a day. And that's obviously way more than our family of three can consume. Uh, we do make butter and cheese and yogurt and we Wait, can I just super quick uh-huh. maybe silliest question ever but like she makes those four gallons of milk but the baby doesn't need to drink that so yeah with dairy animals she makes more than four gallons of milk so there are different ways to intervene so basically when we as humans are drinking the milk of other species we're taking the milk from the babies absolutely but dairy breeds have been bred and selected over many many years to produce way more milk than their babies need Um, if they just produce the amount of milk their babies need they wouldn't make enough to power a whole gigantic industry based on dairy products. So what we do, what we've, we've done a few different things with our cow, but we let the baby in commercial dairies, I hate to, to uh, break this news to folks, but babies are taken away before the mother even licks them or sees them. So cows and their calves have a very strong bond. And so if you let them bond, then the cow will become very distressed. I mean, either way, she'll become very distressed because she just gave birth and then you take her baby away. But most commercial dairies raise the calves either on milk in a bottle that they've milked from the mother and or on milk replacer, which is uh, like basically like formula for calves. And what we've done, we've done a bunch of different things. Sometimes we'll just separate the babies at night and then milk in the morning. And so we get less than four gallons, obviously, at that time, but we get some and then the baby gets some and they still get to spend time together. That's typically what we do with our goats. It works better with goats. 
Um, but with this last calf, we let them stay together. I was wanting a break from milking and we let them stay together for about six months. And at that point, the calf didn't need to keep milking, but he keep nursing, but he was. And then we um, slaughtered the calf uh, for his meat. And then I started milking. So that's where the gallon and a half comes from. But there's lots of different ways to, to do that process. Awesome. Thanks for going through all that. Yeah. I knew that babies were taken away from their moms at the commercial dairy, yeah. but I just never really put that together, I guess, till you said that. So yeah, just continuing to answer your question about size and scale. And um, it's been really a learning process about how much of each crop we need to grow at this point. Uh, field corn or dry corn is a big crop that we grow and we grow that to make tortillas primarily. Uh, sometimes we make cornbread or tamales or other fun things, but um, we found that we can grow enough corn in a year to last us for a year or two. And so we alternate years of growing corn. And then with things like potatoes and sweet potatoes, we've oftentimes grown more that we need. And so we sometimes sell them and we've been playing with the amounts of things that we grow because storage is also an issue, right? When you're growing your own food, things like potatoes and sweet potatoes, it's... Yeah, we have a huge storage. Yeah, so so you, you have to store them over the winter. And so it's not just a question of how many you'll eat, but it's also a question of what kind of setup you have for storing them and how long can you store them so yeah those there's those so many as you know so many factors i was going to ask that about the corn but i figure yeah. you probably make the corn into like corn meal so it's easier to store. yeah well the corn we just is just dry so it's dry corn so it can just we store it as whole kernels in uh, plastic buckets but it can be stored at room temperature because it's dry so you just like take the kernels off the hort uh, off the cob and like put them in the thing that's still easier than the, yep than like yeah, saving exactly. years of corn. I mean, still way less space. Yeah, it takes it takes up less and then space. And what about yeah, the goats? Exactly. Um. Yeah. What What do you have specific questions about the goats, or just how we decided on how many goats we wanted? And what do you get from the goats again? I think I cut you off when you were saying milk. Milk. Yeah. So we, we, we milk, I, right now I'm milking two goats and we get about a half gallon of milk per goat. That depends on the breed and the time of year and all of these things. And we mostly make kefir and chev and feta cheese from the goat milk. And um, with the cow milk, we sell a lot of cow milk and yogurt. So it's a nice way to kind of, um, yeah, have the cow pay for herself basically. Oh. Awesome. I love feta cheese. That sounds so good. <laughs> and it's so expensive. So I like, yeah, rarely ever buy it. Um, yeah. You know, I have a it's friend who makes, make. she has a dairy cow and she makes the most delicious mozzarella cheese. And she says it's easy. And like, I'm an Italian that grew up in New York where like you could go to the deli and get fresh mozzarella cheese and her mozzarella i could not believe it i was like oh my god you made this i even bought um rennet once to try <laughs> to make it but then i never got the woman who had a cow near us sold her cow and so then i never did it but um yeah you can make mozzarella with store-bought um cheese it's really not you mean with store-bought big of a deal to use store-bought yeah that's uh, what i mean Hmm, I might have to try that because the rent's just sitting. I don't know if it goes yeah. bad. It's just sitting in my fridge. 
it's been a summer. Yeah, it does yeah, after about a year. About there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, now's now's your chance. <laughs> huh? Is there something like you're excited to try this year that you guys haven't done before? Um, let me think. Yes, we have, um, my partner really spearheaded this, but we have in the ground now sown last fall wheat, several different kinds of heirloom wheat, and we've never grown wheat before, but we have this dairy cow. So we have a lot of homemade butter and we don't eat a lot of wheat and, and gluten containing products, but occasionally, you know, we'll buy some sourdough bread or things like that. And so I'm very excited to see how that it's looking really good in the field right now. Obviously it's going to be quite a process to harvest and clean and turn into flour, but I'm excited to, it's looking good so far. So I'm excited to see how that goes. That's what my husband wants to do is grow our own wheat because he makes a lot, we actually eat a lot of gluten because he buy you know we buy wheat flour and she makes a lot of our own bread nice and so we would like to do that someday too our goal is also to grow as much of our own produce as we can possibly to supplement our produce bill and mike's gotten really close with our mini farm but then again storage like this year and last year we got to january and then a mouse got into the potatoes and we just gave the ones the mouse hadn't got to away and ate as many yeah. as we could and just yeah. we don't have like a um a root cellar or anything and so but i had never thought about that turning growing corn to make it into like a cornmeal because i love corn chips i buy like corn chips a lot i eat popcorn all the time and like corn is you know is one of those things that it's hard to um find good quality corn. it is yeah it's yeah. just something we might kind of struggles with he's gotten better and he's definitely planting corn this year but um we have a hard time because our growing season seems to be so short like even like in eureka which is like we're eight miles south of town but they are so much warmer than we are and they have like three weeks on the growing season and, yeah. and it's much easier to get corn there than it is just like in our particular eco climate or yeah whatever. you i would encourage you to check out some um northern adapted varieties of flint corn so um abenaki calais comes to mind i can actually look up right now some varieties that might be very short season and appropriate so when i say corn i mean dry field corn so this is different than sweet corn there you can't just use sweet corn and let it dry and then use that for corn flour and tortillas and such you need to grow varieties that have been bred at, to be harvested in their dry mature form and so there's three different sort of kinds of dry corn, flint corn, flour corn, and dent corn. And the flint corns tend to be um, shorter in their growing season. And that's what they've been developed like in the native people of the Northeast in particular, and even all the way into Canada, develop varieties that are really short maturing. So I think if they can grow field corn in Maine, you can probably do it in Montana too. I would, I would think, is your growing season so much shorter than, than there? Or do you think that that might be possible? You know, we actually looked into buying property in Maine last year. So Mike and I both joined two Maine gardening groups and we are kind of connected with them. They, it's very similar, but like I said, like three, the 
like eight miles in town just north yeah. of us yeah, on the highway um makes a difference yeah. wait can you answer that um so you might could grow it here and you might not mike did get some really good corn seed from um who was it uh bill mcdorman from seeds trust and he like oh, cool. went over to russia and collected the seeds from like siberia and and that has been his most successful corn i think a lot of it just depends on the season like this season you know it'll depend on when is our first frost date and when is our last frost date you know yeah our yeah. first frost date is usually about june the first week in june that or the last frost date in the spring is about the first week in june and then our mm -hmm. first frost in the fall will be about the first week in september yeah. we have had a frost on august 8th yeah um before and just who knows like last year was just a super soggy year this year mike is gonna grow more food than i've ever seen like he already has planted just we have really tried to because we're very worried about there being a huge food food shortage yeah as many cool. people are and that's i that's i totally understand and just um it's been so cool uh developing and teaching this online gardening program to help people kind of quell those fears and transform them from panic into empowerment that's that's really our hope and it's been cool to see that happen from panic to empowerment that might make a great title for this episode <laughs> awesome well, I am, um, we're coming to the end of our hour and I actually need to go. So are there any other questions that you have for me before we sign off? No, that's perfect. Okay. Do you want to just tell listeners how to find your website? Sure. Yeah. So if you're interested in connecting with me personally or with us at Wild Abundance, you can go to www.wildabundance.net. And there is a navigation bar at the top of our homepage where you can see our online classes as well as our on-site classes. We have a blog, which I write for. I haven't been writing in the last couple months because we've been scrambling to put together these new programs, but I will be diving back into that soon. We have a newsletter that you can sign up for and we share uh, tips and how-tos in the garden along with recipes and different fun tidbits and we also have a youtube channel we're active on social media so facebook and instagram wild abundance uh, is if you just search that you should find us we're in the southern appalachians near Asheville, north carolina and i look forward to connecting with some of your listeners and thanks so much for having me and i'm just gonna say one quick thing at least for me to find you, I had to go to the instructor page. Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah, I'm also so on the staff page. page to check out. Yeah, staff um, and instructors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I know listeners are going to yeah. love this episode, and I will send you the links when it comes out. And just uh, your guys' website is awesome. And Thanks. And just keep on doing all these great things. And thank you for sharing with us today. And thank you for changing because I know uh, we were supposed to meet earlier. And I appreciate yeah. you. No problem. Flexibility Thanks is fun. the name of the game. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks, Chloe. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Take Bye. care. Bye. The amazing Patty Armbruster is going to offer the most incredible composting class you'll ever take completely online Saturday, July 18th. 2020 it's only 37 dollars, and you will get a seat you will get a copy of the replay you will get to
pick her brain question and answers um we are just gonna rock the composting how to do composting the most efficient effective and best way to improve the results in your garden today do you know someone who would benefit from the organic gardener podcast if you like what you hear we'd love it if you'd share the organic gardener podcast with a friend thanks again for listening and remember grow local